Hey folks, this is Rob Turner, co-host of Inside Out WTNS. We're going to get right to episode 6.543 in just a minute. But as you will hear, we discuss a documentary called Real to Real that our guest produced and directed. And we just wanted to tell you that it is going to be available for download June 1st. And you can find out information at umphreys.com. Also, I wanted to thank Tony Spina of Buffalo, New York, for his help with the very last segment of music you will hear on the podcast. Now, enjoy episode 6.543 of Inside Out WTNS. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. We're back here, uh, and Rob's back from Wani. Welcome back, Rob. Cheers. It's a wonderful time. And we've got a special guest in the house. A man who has flown out of his way on tour, although he missed some incredible historic flooding in Houston. Uh, The Humphreys McGee Lighting Director, Mr. Jefferson Waffle. Yay. Thank you, Seth and Turner. Great to be here. Technically, today I'm missing uh, Mobile, Alabama. and uh, Mobile. Mobile. The home of Hank Aaron, if you listen to the Colonel interview. And uh, last night we would have been in Jacksonville, Houston, tomorrow. So glad to avoid the flood. Happy to be here in dry yet humid Atlanta. Should we give a quick synopsis of Mr. Waffle? Uh, yeah, why not? Uh, go ahead and uh, pour the batter on the plate. Well, I first met him in 1996. He was actually a DJ at one of my all-time favorite radio stations, WERS in Boston. Used to be just an incredible station. I'm sure it's still pretty good, but it's the um, university station for what would be his eventual alma mater, Emerson College. And um, currently, my alma mater. Uh, yes, once but an alma time, mater, when always an alma mater. But when and you were that's a DJ, my mater. when you were a DJ, you weren't though yet. I think I was I was pimping out disco biscuit stuff. I think I came there once with Dean Budnick, and then I came back because um, like the second biscuit CD, I was buddies with them, and I was going around to any college station I could to get it played on and talk about their shows coming up and stuff. Anyways, Waffle worked there for a while. We'll get to why he left uh, eventually, and and jumped full fledged into a, a music career, starting as a journalist and then as a manager of the band Uncle Sammy. Who, if you never heard of them or saw them, I'm sorry. They were a great, great band. Hey, Max. And, Wetlands uh, era, also uh, playing with bands like The Slip, Ulu, Lake Trout, and of course, the one and only Almighty Senators. If these names ring a bell, then you probably do remember Uncle Sammy. And Rob actually promoted a benefit show where Uncle Sammy opened for the Disco Biscuits. That's right. Oh, I'll have to talk to Mark. I forgot about that. At the Center for the Arts in Natick, and they dropped a hot air balloon. Which is a full rock opera. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that because I'm sure some of the listeners are like, oh my God, they, they, he dropped the it's full rock It's a legendary rock 1998 Natick show yeah. with an uh, opening set by my... Uh, my no, G- first Gut Willig did an acoustic set. That's what I was going to say, my future roommate, oh, John, John Gut Willig, right. did an acoustic set. That's right. I, I, I pretty much lived with everyone who performed at that show, <laughs> except for Magner, which, give me time. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. He ended up being the news editor for jambands.com. He did many relics features, including he's done like four or five interviews with Trey. Um, my favorite piece, though, is the one he did on Neil Young, Trey Anastasia, I mean, a fish. But Waffle, who, you know, must have been nice. We'll get to that, too, because he was a big fan of his going in. And he would eventually leave Uncle Sammy and get laid off by jambands and relics and be hired by Mo. And that began the lighting career on a big level. He did lights for them for six years, went to Humphreys, and has been their lighting director for eight years. He's also the creative content producer for CID Entertainment. He is the site lighting director for CID Presents and the director, producer, and editor of Real to Real, which is a history 
of Humphreys McGee, mostly from 2001 to 2007, although there's some more recent stuff. And it was originally screened at their Colorado, uh, in Colorado during their New Year's run. And it will soon be available for download. It's called Real to Real, R-E-E-L to R-E-A-L. And uh, welcome to our show, Jefferson. Uh, you forgot one big piece, though. He's also a man, uh, some would say Superman, but instead of the man of steel, he's the man of irony. <laughs> irony. That actually is true. He's a, he's a stickler for irony. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I'll be uh, sure to point out any if I see any. But for now, these uh, microphone stands are a little bit irony. And on that note, so you guys both were at Wani this weekend. You were working with the band Humphreys McGee and Rob, uh, making other artists uncomfortable by his presence. Um, tell us, Rob. Waffle, welcome back. It's because I'm sweaty. Right, since I have two pun artists here, I'll, I'll give you one. You might want to keep me around in the winter because I'm a bit of a sweater. There you go. That's the only one you get, guys. Um, wow. Two pun people didn't like that. Well, you know. Oh, anyways. Do you want to talk about some of the music? Sure. Um, Anders Osborne with North Mississippi All-Stars was a treat. I've only seen him, seen him sit was in. Was he just, them. he was sitting in as a guest? Yeah, it was him and his bassist. I think they had Luther and another drummer, and, and Luther Dickinson, who is the son of Jim Dickinson. Luther and Cody Dickinson are both the son of Jim Dickinson, legendary producer. Actually, if you have Wild Horses, he's the one playing the piano. Wild Horses, the studio version. They did a wonderful set, very improvisational, actually heavy at times. If any of you are familiar with Will Smith, the uh, lineman for the New Orleans Saints, he uh, played for them for years, including on the Super Bowl winning team. We've got bad news. Yes. In regards to him. Yes. Yeah, if you don't know, sorry. He got shot to death by some jack-off who, you know, can't handle situations except to shoot someone. Too much of that in the world today. Very heavy, very nice song. Another song about Katrina. And, oh, there was one song of theirs that they took into, like, a breathe, into a breathe jam. Like breathe, uh, Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd, yeah. And then just resolved into the end of Down by the River. I was wondering, it might even have been spontaneous. Breathe Down by the River. Yeah. Depending on what river, he might not want to breathe. Are you sure it wasn't, it's, you know. it wasn't Home Again, the song that Breathe segues into, which sounds identical to Down by the River? Same chord progression? Possibly. E minor, e minor seventh into A major? Possibly, because it wasn't exactly Breathe. It was like close to it, but not, not exactly it. So you might be onto something there. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Wani takes place at the Suwannee River. Um, which is uh, the Spirit of the Swanee uh, in Live Oak, Florida, North Florida, kind of right there on the border of Georgia and Florida. Um, they host a lot of festivals there, a lot of, including Wani, of course, but there was Bear Creek used to be there, Spring Fest and Magnolia Fest, which I understand are possibly moving. Yes. What's the rumor? I, I did get that? some whispers on that. And you know what, Seth? It uh, dovetailed right into your Triangle of Love theory. Oh, yeah? Well, there's one of these festivals. Peter Rowan's people had not been treated. That would be Springfest, probably. I'm just I guess. guessing. I'm just this, guessing. This is all, plays there. This is all lot speak, but it's coming from lot speak from people who seem pretty in the know. Were, were a lot of people speaking about it? Uh, no, there was just certain pockets. So then a little speak at the lot. A little speak in the lot, yes. Uh-huh. You got me there. Um, apparently, Rowan and other artists have not been treated too well at that festival. And, and like you were saying in the Triangle of Love, and if people have listened to our previous episodes, that a big part of the show is also how the... how how comfortable the artists feel. Yep. And I'm sure that the, if you ask the promoter, the promoter would say, well, it's budget, you know, we can't just have free beer and food for everyone. But then, well, what's that cost value? You know, what are we talking here? A couple kegs of beer more? Or like, what are we talking to food catering well, wise? Apparently, what, what's that value at? Where's that value at? Because honestly, if, if this is what you're saying. Well, in the case of Bitterone, it's not even allowing his family backstage. So that's not even a cost, really, is it? Uh, no, it's, that's not a cost. That's and maybe lame. security, it's an extra cost. But it's like a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Steve Miller thing. 
Real quick on a couple artists, we got to talk uh, about Stanley listen, Clark. You can take your time. We got to talk about Stanley just, Clark. Just, just hurry up, but take your time. Seriously, <laughs> as much as you want to say, just say it in a couple words, okay? No, seriously, hurry up. Stanley Clark is amazing. Oh my God, he blew me away. Yes. He had a little four piece. He had a guy from Israel, which you would like on 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 keys. He had like a Yamaha and a Grand. He didn't touch the Grand. Yeah, until a the Yamaha. <laughs> yeah, he had a Yamaha. And then the other guy had a Roland and a something else, Korg or whatever. And the drummer, Mike Mitchell. Hello, Music World, welcoming Mike Mitchell. Although to jazz fans, it's probably not news. A 21-year-old guy who was just phenomenal. Clark would just gesture to him, and they'd get in each other's face and duel it. Really, really nasty and uh, impromptu. But Umphreys McGee played, too. Yeah, we, uh, we played twice. We played uh, during the day on a very quick turnaround after loading out of New Orleans the night before till about 2.30 in the morning. And then we were back at it, I believe, at 2.30 p.m. the next day. And you had to, you had about two hours from when you got there to program. And even though it's a day set, the first one was a day set, you would miss the lights if they weren't there. And they do augment, not as much as at night, but they do augment. So you had to get there and program right away. Typically, the goal for a daytime set, for me anyway, and most lighting designers that I know, is you just basically are hitting the beats with various colors and movement where you're not actually lighting up the subject because because it's so bright out you're not actually going to see it the human eye is not going to be able to detect the you know the led lights illuminating the the front of the band members faces because the sun is so bright so what you're basically doing is taking the lights above the stage and creating you know pretty looks in typically white or yellow because those are the brightest colors that show up less reds and blues and you hold them, hold them for long periods of time and are less about emphasizing the changes as you would be at night. Yeah. It's more uh, seasonal lighting. Sure. It's okay. not as much fun for me. Right. People ask if it's a challenge. It's not a challenge. It's just not as stimulating. And they played a nice set, and it's one thing about your band that I uh, have always admired and respected is the way they put together their festival sets. What do you mean by that? Well, they, they, well for example, they have a song called Loose Ends that has a very, you know, again, we're at the Wani Music Festival. It's an older crowd. And this Loose End song is one of their lyrically strong, maybe their strongest lyrically song, I think. And it has this Beatle feel. And I was watching, I was standing next to this guy on the board, watching the crowd and watching people like get into the song. And they, they just hit on all their different sides really well. You know, they do the improv, but not too long because it's, it's, you know, a lot of new fans who haven't heard them. Bottom half, I think, had some nice improv and the sun came out. And that was really nice. So just to interlude you for a second, um, Rob, you're the fan. And this is your perspective? Sure. Industry here, Waffle, is what he's saying just a coincidence? Like, that's his view? Or is it something that the band actually constructs to, to achieve the goals and, and he's actually seeing those goals achieved? As much as I love to goof on Rob, he is very intuitive and he definitely knows what he's talking about in this very specific <laughs> instance. Yes, the band does tailor their set list to whatever the venue or the crowd is or the festival is. So, for example, the following night, on Saturday night, we played from midnight to two. So the band was definitely more aware of putting in danceable songs and maybe aware of the level of recreational, you know, partying or people's energy level is going to be. Say, you, were all, you almost said recreational chemistry. And I was going to say to you that's, uh, you know, former band. We got a good one of those in January right here in Atlanta. Okay. With Ivan Nello. Uh, but yes, they're aware of it. So during the daytime set, maybe there's going to be more Almond Brothers fans sitting in their chairs that are set up in advance. Asking people to sit down so they can see the show they're talking over. Get off my lawn. Sure. So they're going to play a little bit more of their mainstream stuff and try to really connect. Right. Um, and then the late night set, you're, you're going to have more young kids who are up at that hour and kind of partying all night. And maybe they're 
nerves are a little shot because they've been partying for two or three days straight and they're going to let loose. And the band, you know, tailors their set list to that. The late night set was on a side stage called the Mushroom Stage, which mm-hmm. is uh, on a smaller, more in- in- enclosed area with tree covering. And uh, so how long did you, you set that up the next day? So you basically have to load out and then load back in because it's a separate stage, right? Correct. But well, you're, not, you're not moving your lighting console, though. This, they have that board already set up, yeah? No, it was our lighting console. We actually didn't use our lighting console for the daytime set uh, because the console we use is called a Grand MA full-size version 2, which is kind of the industry standard these days. So most festivals have it, and in this case, it was widespread panics. LD, uh, Paul Hoffman. Who, by the way, if anyone's interested in lighting, I have to give him credit. He, his, his designs have really stepped up. I don't know if it's the band giving them more budget and more, more to work with, but his stuff was, in the last year and a half, I, I see a tremendous difference. Oh, he was, they have trees behind the stage on the main stage, and he was lighting them up and working them into the show. Mm-hmm. It was really well done, and I was thinking to myself, why wasn't that done in Passing the Almond Brothers? And I think there was always a backdrop on that backstage, so that just wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. But on this year, there wasn't a backdrop, so the trees became part of the light show, and he just did it beautifully. And he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in the industry, and from a very early time, I mean, I, I probably met him the first year I started doing professional lighting as a, as a touring crew member, and he's always... Whenever we've opened for them, he's always let me use the full rig, which is very rare. Normally, an opening band would get, you know, we'll give you the downstage lights, which for those not familiar with that term is the front of the stage. We'll give you the front lights, and that's it, because we don't want the opening band to look good compared mm-hmm. to the headliner. Paul has never done that. What? You know, from the first time we opened for Widespread Panic, he was like, use whatever you want. Use the whole rig. He's just the, the nicest guy, so props to him. And so... When you're on the mushroom stage, it was the festival lights up high and your lights were down low? Correct. Our lights were just on the, on the stage level. Just because it's such a small space, the, the festival puts up their own lights and there's no way for us to get up to them. It, there's just no space. It's just a, it's limiting. But is it tedious to put your lights in there or is it just like any other gig? It's like any other gig. There's less space. So it affects the rest of the crew because we kind of all can't be working at the same time. You have to do things. Uh, it's very methodical. So the lights will go in first thing in the morning. And then, you know, eight bands are going to play on that stage. So we can only set up half the lights because you have to leave a pathway where the lights are set up for the other bands to load their gear in and out of. So for me, it's, it's very anticlimactic because normally at any other show, we load in in the morning, set everything up, make sure everything works, and then have a big break in the day until sound check. Something like this, we set up some of the lights as much as we can. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You have to physically leave space for every other band to come on and off that stage. Right. And so that, that happened at 10 a.m. And you, you get up, you have your coffee, you get the adrenaline rush, let's work. And you work for an hour, and then it's like, okay, now we have to stop until 9 p.m. So you wait the full day, and there's not much to do. You nap like four times, you eat, you walk around, and then you go to work. Well, you were programming between bands, right? Programming as much as I could. There's, there's various parts that you can program without actually seeing everything. Well, it's like a, it's like a mouth, right? If you don't have all the teeth, you, you, you know, it's spotty. So you can only polish the, a couple here and there, but you probably, you know, can't. But so now, now that you go ahead and you get the time, so nine o'clock, you're set, set at, so you have two hours where you could, you're set at 12. I want to, I want to, I want to examine the way your brain works. Seth. Uh-huh. What, what about that made you think of teeth? I, I went to the dentist today. Okay. <laughs> A lot of metaphors you could have used there. <laughs> just, I don't know, man. This is what I was seeing in my head. So Umphreys was the last band of the weekend and the last uh-huh. band on the stage. And, you know, throughout, I guess not throughout the weekend. Well, sure. The, the previous two nights, you had seen on that stage this laser effect that I call a cloud effect, but they call it uh, liquid effect, is it? Liquid? Uh, well, their, their laser 
operator called it Liquid Sky. His name is Glenn Wright. And we're going to talk about Glenn. Because um, we, we are talking about Glenn. Well, the thing was that it's th- a really cool effect. But it was maybe being overused a little bit. And, 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 and then you guys started your set, and I was thinking to myself, you know, we got halfway in, and he hadn't, Jeff hadn't used it yet. And I was like, hmm. When are the lasers? The lasers. Yeah, the lasers. Gonna gonna with the lasers. What's up? Does he not like them? What's going on with the lasers? Well, but, I had just seen... Uh, probably the most legendary lighting designer in terms of moving lights, Mark Brickman, who is the lighting designer for Pink Floyd and really was the one who kind of innovated the style of moving lights. Because when moving lights first came out, the whole concept was you're going to light up a subject. If you picture a a theater show or a Broadway-style show, there's a light focused on a fixed position. Or in TV, they always talk about hitting their mark. David Letterman or whoever comes out to do the monologue, he stands on a little X where all the lights are aimed. And so the point of a moving light was we can have multiple X's and they'll move. We'll shut the light off. And while it's dimmed down when there's no intensity coming out, we can move it to another spot and then turn it back on and he'll be on another X. That was the original concept. And at one point, and I talked about this with uh, Candace Brightman at one point as well, when I was interviewing her for Relics, they made a mistake. And you and I talked about this during Terrapin Station. Right. They left the lights up by accident as they were moving them to figure out that, hey, if we leave the light on, the movement can actually be part of the show. And now with, you know, Chris Carota took it to a new level and now pretty much every jam band does this, but the movement is part, is a big part of the show. Um, so I saw Mark Brickman three times in the last couple of weeks on the David Gilmore tour and it was amazing. Same set list every night, but it was so good that I just had to see it again. And uh, I had never seen Mark Brickman before uh, other than, I believe I saw him in 94 with Pink Floyd. But I wasn't a lighting designer then. So I noticed that they had lasers and they saved them for one song. Right. And I won't spoil it if anyone's going to go to Pompeii or something. But <laughs> whatever that last, the last song they save it for. And, I, you know, from being in the industry, I know how expensive it is to rent lasers. And I just thought it was a very kind of baller move. Can I use that word? Baller? Sure. I, yeah. I wouldn't typically. It's not, that's not a, not uh, a overly used one. So you can. But if you throw a let's do this. Good, it, lo- good lot turn, bro. You're out of it's here. It's just, it's, to me, it was so, it's just badass. It's like, yeah, we have enough money that we're going to spend, I, I believe I counted 12 or 16 lasers, and they just used them for one song. So fast forward now to Wani, and I don't normally use other visual aspects other than our show, but the lasers were there for our using, and I decided, you know, I looked at the set list, I'm going to save them towards the end. So you saw the full show, and for the first hour, you're thinking to yourself, right. where are the lasers? He forgot. And somebody tweeted at me, bro, where are the lasers in the tree, man? Like, Wait a were, second. You're looking at your tweets as you're doing a lighting show? Of course he is. No, there was no cell phone reception. This is the next day. Oh. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Twitter exists after, in, in other than real time. I thought it was real time here, guys. But I've seen him do a lot of light shows. And by and holding it, shows also. But by holding it, it was one of the most impactful, powerful things I've seen him do. It really got, it really got me. It was, it was, it was sick. Mm-hmm. And the crowd responded the crowd responded with alacrity. That's that's makes sense. So should we dive into the career? Well, actually, I have a quick question before you get into that. Um, I, I know you you've said lighting designer several times. Now, all right, let's just cut to the chase here. Lighting designer, sound guy. Lighting designer, sound guy. Uh, is there any animosity there between lighting designers and sound guys? I mean, one's a guy and one's a designer. I think we're just talking in semantics. I mean, typ- technically, that would be a sound engineer. Yeah, it's but... A, a light, light guy is also a, a vernacular term. But you don't hear that nearly as often as sound guy. Okay. Hey, guy. What's up, guy? 
Designer, good to see you. Please come in. Would you like a glass of champagne, perhaps? Uh, oh, th- caviar? Sound guy. Yeah, I got you a hot dog. Just saying. Just throwing it out there. Never know. It's earthy. So, Rob. So, Jefferson, this is going to lead back to Wani. Stay with me on this, because he's been working for CID, which is called Considerate Dan, a company put together by Dan Berkowitz. Not called Considerate Dan anymore. That was the original name. Oh, really? Yeah, Dan didn't want his name to be in the title. Then why did he name the company that? Well, because, like Umphreys McGee, you you start off with a project, and you don't know it's going to become this huge force. So like Humphreys McGee has a stupid name? Is that what you're saying? No. When he started Consider It Dan, it was, you know, let's get a couple buses and bring Disco Biscuits fans to a show. And then it became a real corporation, and he made it a more professional name. And it is very... He's, he's on the cutting edge of the Uber VIP. Oh, absolutely. He... Now we see, you know, listen, like my company, work exchange team, we go for the 70 percentile. CID, they go for that one percentile. And we will have him on the show someday. I hope so. He, but he's done great things. And I, I only say that kiddingly because the VIP thing is a, definitely a great service. And, and it's amazing to see. Like you said, I remember back in the day when he was like him and a couple friends getting some, you know, wherever they could get these RVs from and selling. It was like they were o- way in over their head at like Langerado, you know, the first time they did that. And it was like, whoa. And then it really turned into something. And now for, you know, a million dollars, you can really re- own Bonnaroo. Um, you know, with a bus and the whole deal. And he's behind all of that stuff and really does a great job. You know, he, Jeff first started working with them. They're, they're, Phil Lesh from the Grateful Dead did like 14 shows at the, was it the Nokia? It was. In 2008. Sounds right. And so Dan was doing the VIP there and Waffle was handing out crap. I don't know. Oh, it was, uh, I believe. Uh, we were just greeting the guests, giving them their wristbands, giving them their drink tokens. Sure. Uh, it was you, Grumpy Gus, and, uh, and a uh, Jeff King. Was that right? Was that the crew on that year? Was that? No, it was just Dan and I and uh, one or two other staffers. The legendary Jeff King. Um, everybody knows Jeff King. Anyways, so you guys had a lot of downtime together, right? We did. And that was the beginning of it. Because you started doing more and more work for him. A lot of it was VIP nurturing, I guess. Yeah, I would, I would help out when I was off the road. He lived in New York. I lived in New York. He knew that I'd been in the industry, and um, we had a lot of mutual friends, but we never really connected before I moved to New York. You mean you guys weren't texting religiously before you moved to New York? We were not, nor do we now. <laughs> well, you text a lot with him. we got to talk about that. Not nearly as much as some other folks. From and it's getting close. So, so yeah, I helped out here and there when I could. And, uh, but the key was the Luke Bryan one. What did they call it? Crash, Crash. My Playa. That was when they formed CID Presents. Right. Is- and that's when he started doing the on-site lighting, which would ultimately work, lead to you working with Chris Carota last January, correct? This past January, yes. And that was very spontaneous. Not the working with him part, but the actual um, helping operate the lights during the event. That was all not planned. Well, let's start with the six months before. You sit down with him, start talking about it, talk about a Dick's. That's when you, he was working at Dick's, which is a venue, a large venue in Colorado, and Fish was playing there, and they were coming out late because they were working on stuff for the Encore, right? In September, correct. And tell me what happened. Uh, that was when we officially got the word that we'd be working together. Um, Fish is traditionally very uh, particular about their events. This was not specifically a, you know, billed as a festival, but as we know, or maybe 
the listeners don't know, but as we in this room know, Fish has always been very much about we're going to do our festival our way, and mm-hmm. it's going to have the band members' approval on every little detail, and that's what makes their event so special. For those of you listening, Bonnaroo is modeled after the the large-scale fish-only festivals done in the mid-'90s. And the, on the industry side... Inici- initially modeled. And on the industry side, there's a working these music festivals, especially the larger ones, the majority of the people that are behind these large events in terms of the the muscle, the uh, production managers, the uh, the operations managers, uh, just all the teams that that come, they all uh, a lot of them come from the fish world and from the fish festivals back in the day. So you know you had Woodstock and all that, and then I think like festivals kind of when they started popping up again, fish fish went big, and and the the crew that they built are the ones that really build all the festivals that you guys go to. Am I correct in that the 90s Woodstocks were seen as the way not to do it? The, the ones that ended in fire and riots? <laughs> I mean, it sounds good unless you're there. Right. It was great on TV. It did make for dramatic theater, yes. And then you read how Chili Peppers did the impromptu fire encore. That was pretty cool. Anyways, what were we talking about? Uh, we were on a beach in Mexico. Yes. No, you were on the soundboard with Chris, and he was you were he was Colorado because Fish was late coming on stage, so he started quizzing you about it wasn't it wasn't we we met before the show we met at you know dinner time six o'clock or whatever we talked about this is my experience last year because again we had only done it one year the inaugural year was Crash My Playa it was at that's the, the Luke Bryan thing yes it was at the it was the first CID presents event and it was at the Barcelo the same site where the fish festival would occur and and also a similar model where it was not just that one site, but they had other hotels. So you went, you know, this is the different model when CID presents came out uh, with crash. The crash wasn't just one resort. It was, you could, you could have a option of like six resorts that you could stay at. And the show is at one resort. So you have this whole travel piece that's going along with it. And then the show is at a much larger, you know, the, the largest resort. The, the host resort. The host resort, yeah. So we talked about it at dinner, and he was very curious about my experience and the types of lights we used, and we kind of were just very, you know, approximating what we were going to do. And then I went back to my seat, and the show was about to start, and those of us that have seen Fish know that it's usually right around 45 minutes after the ticketed time. So I believe the ticketed time was about 7.30. 8 o'clock comes, 8.10 comes, you see the monitor guy up on stage, you're, you're thinking, okay, any minute now the lights are going to go down. And at about 8.15, I get a text from Chris saying, can you come to front of house, which is the area where the light board is. And of course, I ran down and I said, I thought there was maybe a problem. They Push, <laughs> he's pushing people, their posters are flying in the air, popcorn and Emergency beer. lighting mm. situation, emergency lighting situation. Yeah, I thought, like, you know, I broke my hand, I needed to, you know, take over. <laughs> and he was just kind of, him and his, uh, one of the most gifted programmers in the world, Andrew Giff and Andrew Giffen, pardon me, uh, they were both just very eager to kind of conceptualize and, and visualize what the setup was like. So that was the only reason he had texted me. And I said, well, you know, where's the band? And he said, oh, they're working out something special for the encore, which would eventually become that, the harpua that spelled uh, yeah. thank you or whatever. Yeah, they did a bunch of songs they hadn't done before, and they spelled the beginning of the song spelled, I forget what it spelled out. Right. So that was the beginning of it, and then we talked about it over the, the next few months. And uh, we wound up down on the beach. And, you know, an event like that is planned year-round. I mean, we're already planning next year uh, various events. Uh, but the component of Kuroda and I actually talking creatively didn't start until the fall. And then once we got down there and we were on the beach, we started talking about specific logistics 
about how we were going to run all the various lights. And I had just been under the impression that he would run everything because it's his show. And when we did Crash My Playa, the light board wasn't even set up next to their light board, the sight lighting that we were doing. We were off at the, at the back of the field, had no interaction with Luke Bryan's camp or any of the other headliners. So that was kind of what I was thinking was going to be similar about this year. And once we started talking and we started going over logistics and programming, um, we eventually arrived at the idea that I would very subtly and, you know, very slowly and not, no, no sudden changes, um, run the lights over the ocean that, that were in the sky and over the ocean while he ran just, I think mainly because he didn't have enough hands to run it all himself. Um, but yes, it was a, uh, one of the most creatively stimulating experiences of my life. Now you have to understand this previous to this waffle when he did light shows, doesn't like anyone else being any part of your, your show, right? Well, I don't want anyone else ever pressing a button that's right. going to affect the show, which that's what I mean. would only happen when you would have uh, pyrotechnics, which has happened with, these are all specific examples that I've experienced, pyrotechnics, lasers, um, any, any kind of visual effect that you have to rely on someone else. And the reason is not because that those people are not talented. It's just because they don't have the intimate relationship with the music the way that somebody who does every show would know. He doesn't know the tendencies of the improv. He doesn't know all the subtle little eye contact or, or visual cues that the band members are doing. And you're talking about split seconds where they're coming out of a guitar solo and the lasers might be going crazy and you don't have enough time to turn your head and say, hey, blackout now. You only have enough time to hit the button. Right. And so we had used lasers a couple times in the past and I was insistent upon, I have to be the one to hit the button. And the laser people get a little offended at that. They're like, well, I've been working in this industry for 40 years, and who's this kid telling me I can't run my own lasers? This is my lasers. We've been at Wani all weekend, and we've run it for every show. And our position is always like, well, that's great, but this is our show, and we want it to look the way we want it to look. And so that was the mindset going in to Wani. So as we're setting up for Wani, I turn around and I meet this very polite British gentleman 
and I introduced myself and I said, you're the laser guy. And he says, yes, I'm Glenn. And I said, I'm, I'm Jefferson. I, I have a bunch of work to do, but I'll talk to you around 11 o'clock, which was an hour before the show at midnight. And he was patient and very calm. And he just had this very nice air about him. And, uh, I, I, I asked him, I said, you know, so it's cool if I run the, the lasers. Right. And he's like, well, yeah, if you'd like to, and, um, but I can't, you know, I don't really think I can move all this equipment down to where you are. I was down in the lower level of the front of house uh, riser and he was about, you know, six feet behind me on an upper level. And so I said, well, why don't you kind of show me some of your best things? And I thought about what you told me about the liquid sky or as you called it, the cloud. cloud effect. That was the first thing I said to him. And I said, let me see that. That'll be our starting point. And so he showed me that and I said, oh, that's pretty. I like that. I'm going to use that in glory, which is a really kind of mellow, uplifting, umphrey song. So I said, write that down. That's our first cue. And then I went through five other cues. And I said, show me something crazy, like a strobe. We're going to use that in All in Time, which is a climactic Humphrey song. And I basically kind of arrived at the idea as we were going through this that, like, this guy seems like he knows what he's doing. And I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but the fact that he had a British accent, for some reason, just, it, to me, I was sold. I was oh, like, you don't say. It just seems like he knows what he's doing. Oh, well, pardon, pardon me, but you're absolutely bloody right. If you're going to have this, you have some tea with him, you say? Sure. Did you have tea? No. Was it tea for two? No tea. No tea. So just the, lasers, no tea. So the first hour of the show goes by, and finally... You're seriously, you're telling me you didn't have any tea? No tea. How can you not have tea? How can you have pudding and no tea? He's not from Australia. I did not say, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I will be working on my accents. So glory comes and I say, all right, here we go. This is the thing. And he he brings it in and it looks amazing. And I immediately turned around. And even though I'd been so strict with him about like, this is specifically where it's going to happen and this is going to happen. And then I'm going to tell you to stop. As the jam progressed and I was evolving the lights, I, I just gave him a a signal with my finger, like a circular motion, like keep going, do something else. And he did it. And it was very intuitive and it looked great. And then at the last minute, Jake, our guitar player was soloing and he gave the band that quick little nod where you only have half a second to react. And I turned around and the normal way you would call cues traditionally is stand by to blackout, blackout. You have to say stand by to so they're ready. But I didn't, I missed all that because I was watching Jake again, why I don't ever let anyone else press the button. And I turned around at the last second and I just gave him the you know, slit your throat, kill signal sign. And he did it right on the downbeat. He was very intuitive. He got it. And so then I'm thinking, okay, this guy's no, this guy knows what he's doing. And it occurred to me later as he, he worked a couple other songs that this was a direct correlation of Chris Carota trusting me with his show. And I don't think I would have been as, you know, willing to let someone else run the show. But, but Chris, that to me, that was a really big moment for me and, uh, my career because it was like, you know, I know how Chris is and I, I learned a lot from watching him and his philosophy and for him to give me that trust. I, it was, it was easier for me to turn to this guy and say, okay, I'm going to put the show basically in your hands and let you hit the button. So we go through the encore. They never wound up playing all in time, which was the song we prepared for the most. Um, everything went great. The show ends. I turn around. The first thing I do is I shake this guy's hand and I said, that was amazing. Great job. Like that was so great. It really was amazing. It really was beautiful. And he turns to me in a British accent that I'm not going to do, and he says, I've been doing lasers for The Who since 1968. <laughs> I said, dude, why didn't you tell me that at 9 a.m.? Like, we could have had a totally different day. Uh, so the moral of the story is... You should have had tea with him so you would have had something to talk about, and you would have known that he did The Who instead of who did he work for, and The Who thing would have been a factor. 
Did you ever think when you're way back at Fitchburg State, which is where Fitchburg. Jeff- Jefferson was before he was at Emerson, Jefferson had a radio show on uh, WXPL, is it? W-R-E-T. Explosive Radio. On 91.3. And we were a bit of a celebrity there way back. I don't know if I was a celebrity, but there, there, just, there wasn't a lot of competition. The, the college radio station was not exactly WERS. But you had built up an ego, and you, you went to, well, I don't mean, a self-confidence, <laughs> so that when you went to WERS, right? Right. And you applied for a job. I applied for it. I transferred. I always wanted to go to Syracuse or Emerson College, the two biggest, as far as I know. I'm sure you're a BU student. You're going to say Sure, but I love Emerson. It's a great school. But as far as broadcasting, a lot of the pros went to either Syracuse or Emerson. And couldn't get into Syracuse because my grades were shit. Are we allowed to swear? Yes. Motherfucker. You can say shit, motherfucker, but you cannot say the C word. Okay. Although you have. I have, and my wife told me, if you use the C word... You're not allowed to do the podcasting anymore. I don't really like the C word either. So I, I got into Emerson finally. I transferred as a junior. I, I waltzed into the radio station for my big tryout thinking, you know, I just came from the number one rated show. Not even that. There's no ratings in Fitchburg, but I had a primetime show and people, people knew who you were. And- uh, whatever. It's, it was a small state school. And uh, I didn't get an on-air job at Emerson. They gave me a producing role, which basically is, you know, you're assisting the the DJ, and occasionally you can talk. And luckily, I, I worked with a guy who, who let me talk occasionally. It was a blues show called Bluesology. But I almost didn't take the gig because I had a lot of other stuff going on. I had a lot of journalism courses and a lot of projects. And I was like, do I really want to do this radio thing? I've been doing this since I was a kid, and it was always a kind of a fun little play activity. And I almost was not into it because I, I thought I should have a show. I eventually worked my way up and got a radio show because somebody else graduated, I got the jam show before the word jam band even existed. Right. It was called Psychedelic Crunch. And I changed the name to Space Jam. Right. Before Michael Jordan had the cartoon movie. <laughs> we were going to sue, but we figured he might have had deeper pockets. Yes. You'd be waltzing right he, back out of there. You'd bleed you dry. Yes. So I got the show. That's where I met you, Rob. You came in wearing a really loud sweater and a turtleneck. I'll always remember that for some reason. He, I love turtlenecks. Yeah, you never wear the turtlenecks anymore, but when you Once do, boy, is it funny. So I met Dean Budnick, who later would coin the term jam bands and form yes. the website jambands.com, which would then right. be bought by Relics, and Peter Shapiro's involvement as he's involved with pretty much everything in, in the jam sphere. Uh, but at the time, we called it improvisational rock, and that was when I met a lot of the very early jam bands, you know, like the, the God Street Wines and the per- Percy Hill, Strange Folk Moe, Ominous Seapods. The Slip. The Slip. Actually, the slip played three times. They're, they played more than any other band. We, we had a live recording studio where bands could come in and perform, which was kind of rare in those days for a college radio station anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of where I got my start in the music industry. And then you also became a manager for Uncle Sammy somewhere in there too, right? I oh. did. That was, uh, again, just kind of a fluke side gig because I started interning at Gamelon Productions, who were the producers that put on Berkshire. The, the Berkshire Mountain Music Festival, which at the time, there, again, there was no Bonnaroo. Gathering of the Vibes existed, but... but Ber- the Berkfest was, was, I mean, before Bonnaroo, Berkfest was it. And then yes. all of a sudden Bonnaroo came and it was like, whoa! Well, Berk- I think Berkfest and Gathering of the Vibes were kind of on equal levels. Mm, yeah, but I think, though, Gathering the Vibes is always very Grateful Dead-oriented, whereas Berkfest was jam band. Gathering the Vibes still beyond. is very Grateful There is Dead no or. Gathering of the Vibes. Well, they're taking a year off. That we'll may be see. part of the reason why. Mm-hmm. But uh, on that note, um, 
Uncle Sam, you were working with Uncle Sam. Well, yeah. I was I was working as an intern for Gamelon Productions because I had been talking to them on the phone so often because here's this young kid who's 20 years old, being me, doing a jam band radio show, and they saw that as an outlet to promote all of their jam band shows in town. They had just started doing a series at the Somerville Theater, which you probably remember, very Bill Graham-inspired. All the posters look like Bill oh, Graham yeah. presents, the, the very psychedelic, colorful Posters. I think there's a book that has all those posters uh, from the Gamelon days. I don't. I think uh, I don't remember where I saw that, but absolutely very Fillmore-esque. I'd love to see that. So I was just fascinated. I was reading Bill Graham's book at the time, and uh, so I remember. By the way, that is my favorite book. If, if anyone listening that's interested in the music business, uh, that is the Bible, one of the Bibles. Bill Graham, real quick, he's a guy who came out of the theater scene in San Francisco, started booking bands, and became a legendary promoter, working in all the biggest stuff, and we lost him about uh, 25 years ago. Yeah. So I interned for them. I was living with one of my oldest friends, Max Delaney, and I said he's a genius guitarist going to Berkeley School of Music. Um, at the same time, and also friends with all of the guys that are now in Lettuce and, uh, and Soul Live. And it was, a, it was a great time for a lot of young musicians coming up, and they, there was a lot of camaraderie. And I said, hey, Max, you know, I have this great gig. You should start a band, and I'll get you a bunch of gigs. And that's how Uncle Sammy started. So we, we had a manager and a guitarist before we had a bassist, drummer, or keyboardist. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of a crash course in the music industry. I eventually started doing lights for them just because I knew the music, because they were rehearsing in our basement every night. We lived with the whole band. It was literally, you know, six of us in a house. So every time they'd rehearse, you could hear it in the entire house. So I knew every change to every song. Right. And That's actually uh, when I first met you was in 99. You came down to Tallahassee. I promoted Uncle Sammy's show. And what I learned is I co-promoted, and it was like a spring show. And we thought it'd be great. We'd do it on this Sunday. We had like two other bands. We're going to do it in the backyard of, uh, backyard, the back parking lot of uh, of this um of this venue, uh, Floyd's Music Store in Tallahassee, Florida. And, uh, you know, two two guys, me and another guy, two Jewish guys promoting a show. And we're like, geez, where is everyone? And Uncle Sammy was great, and, you know, it was a good show, but, like, where where's all the crowd? And then someone's like, <clears throat> it's Easter Sunday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you're a promoter out there and a Jew, maybe pay attention to these things because they do matter. Well, I want to talk about Patty Burks, if you don't mind. This, I don't mind. This is a little room right near the Boston Garden that you you did a regular series of free shows, and I helped um, I helped promote. I handed out a bunch of flyers, essentially breaking the law, helping you out. I don't recall if the show was actually free. I think the booze was the free. Booze, oh, oh yeah, you paid a the, cover, but there was an hour of free drinking beer, and we would hand out all these flyers, which was highly illegal and yeah. still is in Massachusetts. I was not, handing, well, the, it was right up the road from the. I was handing them out in Bruins games in the Fleet Center, you know, because I'd go to Bruins game and then walk over to the show. I was breaking the law, breaking the law. So we had a buddy who I think was the manager of this little Irish bar. And he said, sure, you know, like he was an old deadhead. And he's like, just bring, you know, bring all your friends. We want to get like, we want to establish our, our live music presence. And we actually, we, you were handing out flyers and Rob Turner is one of the best promoters I've ever met. I mean, Rob Turner will be in the parking lot at an amphitheater with 20,000 people and a stack of flyers. And he will literally hand out every flyer because he told someone he would. I'm like, dude, nobody's going to know if you hand them out or not. And he always would hand them out because he's my mother. My mother's a strict conversationist who didn't like stuff wasted. So anybody who give me flyers, they all get hung up and handed out, or I just beat myself up on the inside. Go on. So we would not only have Rob hand out the flyers, but we would actually post them on the streets. Yes. So it was a great way to get a bunch of new fans who were basically, at the time, you know, fish fans. And I was going on fish, fish message boards and saying, hey, I'll, I'll uh, mail fish you. Fish RM, what is it? Uh, 
the fish RMP? Was no, it was uh, it was Andy Gadiel's fish page. Okay, okay. had its own message board. That was my original community of fans that I met. And I said, "Hey guys, I have this new band. I'd love to send you a, a free cassette." Because in those days, that was cutting edge. 1997, a, a cassette tape was it. And uh, I mean, there was probably CDs at the time, but I wasn't that advanced. We were a small band. It took a little bit of money, actually. Uh, 97, 98 that year, uh, I was the director of the Jewish Student Union at Florida State, and we were able to utilize our budget, so I, I purchased a, uh, a brand new computer that had a CD-ROM that you could burn discs on, so, but we, we went from burn, uh, copying cassettes and what, promoting shows, we would just make cassettes in the house, and we burned through just the machine and just cassette after cassette after cassette, and then it's like, oh my God. And then at the same time, Netflix, Netflix, sorry, Napster came out. Remember that? And then it's like, I mean, it just talk about an explosion. Here you you have like to spend, you know, the you remember how cassettes used to copy though? It was like fast copy, but it still took like 25, 30 minutes. And then you get the CD burning. And then in addition to that, you get access to like almost every single song out there. It's crazy. It was an explosion. So then moving from Uncle Sammy, you ended up getting the mo job well do we want to talk about the we got busted the, the <laughs> oh the boss that's right yeah yeah yeah. talk about the boss and then we'll move i on. mean it wasn't it was it's not a great story but just For putting out flyers we, well that's you're a happy not a, hour. you're not allowed to have a happy hour in massachusetts and we were blatantly advertising it on the street in and the so, in the garden during bruins games well and it wasn't so much that it was more that we were on a street with many bars that are all in strict competition because when the boston garden shows or games would let out everyone's trying to get the business of all these people mm-hmm. so some of the other bartenders or owners presumably saw these signs and ratted us out to the abc in one week we got a call saying we can't do this anymore because happy hours are illegal and we were blatantly advertising this so maybe not the best judgment on patty burke's part but we were happy to go along for the ride and that's how uncle sammy got its first start and we never became that big of a band but we definitely got a core fan base of, you know, maybe 50 to 100 people, which for a young man was significant. And we started playing house parties of some of these people. And there was a nice little community of these fish fans that would, you know, they only knew each other because of the internet and they would all kind of get together and we would do these shows in people's basements. And it was just kind of a word of mouth thing. And uh, yeah, it all started at Patty Burke's. I was just listening to Uncle Sammy a couple of weeks ago because, you know, I purged my collection and I found a cassette. Really nice stuff. Recycle, By the way, recycle his, now, M A G. His collection is like there's a room when you open it up, and it just like the you know, picture like the closet where you open up and everything falls out. It's just like a it's like it's raining tapes. You open the doors, <laughs> and it's just tapes. And then Rob's like, "Oh, look what I found! It's uh, this is like, I remember recording this one. This one's oh, <laughs> it's amazing the stuff I come I find. It's 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 been very fun. But I'm getting stuff out, I'm getting rid of stuff. So Mo. How did you get that job? How was it at first, given that you had only worked on, on mainly tiny boards with Uncle Sammy? Well, Uncle Sammy would play a venue in Boston called Harper's Ferry, which at the time was, you know, a step up from Patty Burke's. And they had this tiny little light board, which is probably about the size of the, the audio mixer that we're using here. I mean, it was very, you know, very light, eight, eight channels. And all you could basically do is, you know, fade in colors or tap colors on the downbeat. And that's kind of how I learned. I just played it as a piano and hit the buttons. And as long as you were accenting the music rhythmically, that was all that mattered. Uh, No moving lights in those days. And it wasn't until we went to Wetlands Preserve, which I believe was because of the radio show, I had met Strange Folk. And Strange Folk's manager was friends with Pete Shapiro, who obviously now is pretty legendary in our scene. But at the time, he was this young kid who had just kind of bought Wetlands and I was introduced to him through our mutual friend, Brett Fairbrother, who 
was the manager of Strange Folk, and uh, we got a couple gigs. And Uncle Sammy played downstairs in the lounge, and then eventually we moved up to the main stage as an opening act. And uh, Jake Sufernarski, Snuffleupagus, who uh, is is a another legendary figure. He was the talent buyer at the Wetlands at the time. Uh, Matty Urbino, who is the lighting designer for the New Deal and the Disco Biscuits and a bunch of other people. Those two guys showed me how to use the first moving lights console that I had ever used, which was at Wetlands in that little DJ booth for people that remember that. And I would just kind of hit the buttons and I wasn't necessarily always sure what was going to happen when I hit each button, but I knew something would change. <laughs> so I got, I remember the, the first few times that there would be these like really kind of out of body experiences where the band would be just channeling some higher energy and I was just lost in the music and just hitting random buttons and something really cool would happen. And somewhere in my brain, I was like, oh, that looks cool. And I think to this day, there's probably stuff that I did by accident then that I still am channeling just because your first impression with anything is, is very powerful. Jazz musicians would call that happy accidents. Sure. Or, or, and most, most humans would just say remembering your first time. Correct. So, yeah, we did Wetlands, and then we, the band, you know, I, I probably managed them for five years or so, and as they moved up into other venues, certain venues had moving light systems, and the technology was also evolving and progressing. And I kind of had the benefit of learning very gradually as the band grew. And a lot of young lighting designers ask me now, like, how, do, how did you get into this? And it's, it's a bit of a long story, but it's like you can't just wake up one day and say, I want to be a lighting designer. You have to kind of pay your dues and learn over the course of time. And the thing that I always say is just learn the music. That's way more important to me anyway, to have sat in that house and listened to every rehearsal. And learn music theory. Yeah, it, it helps. I mean, again, I, I feel like I got a music theory degree only because I was living with four guys that went to one of the most prestigious music schools. And so I would listen to music with them. We would sit around and we would listen to Fish live tapes and they would explain to me what was happening. They would count the time signatures. Max, on so many occasions, Max Delaney, again, to reset from Uncle Sammy, he would point out things when we were listening to, you know, split open and melt. He would say, oh, that's three measures of 4-4. Four, four. And the part that's a little off kilter that makes people off balance when they're dancing, that's a measure of 9-8. I said, well, what's that? And he would say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Back to the one. Those types of things, learning how to count, also learning the visual cues that band members give each other all those little things are way more valuable to them, to me anyway than any kind of theory about the way a light works or electricity works because other things you can kind of pick up you can google voltage questions but rhythm and and harmony and melody and you know anticipating where a band is going to go those are things that take a long time and as you're doing that though and anticipating that are the is, is the communication mutual i mean are you ever Dropping different, like like you're saying, you can see the signs of the musicians, and they're changing and they're moving this way. But do you ever throw a creative side and you know push a different color or push a different scheme, scene rather, um, to kind of keep them going in the direction that they're going? Kind of try to fuel that and communicate that with them. Or are you just are you part of the band in that sense, or are you fueling? And this doesn't just mean with Umphreys. This is in general as a lighting designer. That's a great question. That's that's a type of question that a lot of lighting designers would probably feel uncomfortable answering because clearly the musicians are the ones who are the performers that people are paying to go see. But that being said, there are times where accidentally I may guess wrong. And for example, our guitar player, Jake in Umphreys has told me on more than one occasion, and I, I can now recognize it when it happens, he'll be, you know, doing the tension and release thing in a solo where he'll be hitting, you know, a bunch of 16th notes and I'll be strobing along with that. 
And then I'm guessing on the one, it's going to release into that big moment where everyone puts their hands in the air and the mm-hmm. lights go to white. But if I guess wrong, and I, which you have a 50-50 chance a lot of times. Certain nights are better than others. But if I guess wrong and think he's going to keep going and I keep strobing and he's, he releases, he'll see that I'm wrong and he'll follow me just so the overall show looks better. Ah. And vice versa. If, if I think they're going to release and I go to the big white thing, some, you know, on a perfect night, we all guess right. But at the end of the day, there's seven of us that are trying to guess together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I said, certain nights are easier than others. But before we get off of Mo. You know, he had been working for Uncle Sammy doing these small little gigs, gets hired by Mo, and boom, first New Year's show, Radio City Music Hall. I mean, it was, that seems like a bit of a leap. That's huge, actually, yeah. <laughs> right. No, I went from a dingy bar in Brighton to the most, one of the most iconic venues in the world uh, and the biggest theater in the world, which technically it's a theater if it has a presidium, but I digress. Um, <laughs> Mo is looking for a light guy, and my friend Brett, who was the manager of Strange Folk, was very close friends with the whole organization and John Topper, their manager. And he said, what about Waffle? And Topper said, the writer? Because they had <laughs> known me as a writer and as a radio guy. They had played my radio show in Boston. Their publicist knew you well, too, Jim Walsh. Yeah, right. but Jim would call him the wronger. The wronger? Yeah, the writer, wronger, right, wrong. Eh, it's not always going to be funny here, but thanks for listening. So, uh, Welcome to my world, Jefferson. So I think they, they kind of were... Trying to tell Brett, you know, we're we're kind of a professional band. We're actually going to hire some kid who's a writer. You know, we want like a professional lighting designer. And so they they kept tossing around names and they kept asking Brett because Brett did lights for Strange Folk. So him and I, he was kind of a mentor to me, both as a manager and a lighting designer. And Brett kept bringing my name up. And so finally, they said, okay, fine, we'll just we'll give him a tryout if you'll shut up about Waffle. <laughs> and so they gave me a tryout. It was a two-night run in Maddydale, which is basically Syracuse. It's like a couple miles outside of Syracuse. And Syracuse is where I'm bo- I was born and where my first word was uttered, which was light. And you can't make this stuff up. So I, right. you know, Cosmic or whatever. I mean, their first show for me could have been in Utah, but it was, it happened to be in Syracuse. I did the tryout. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't really want this gig. Like, I don't want to be on the road. I have a serious girlfriend. I'm going to settle down. I'm going to get married. I'm 28 at the time or whatever. But I just want to see if I'll get it just because it's, it's fun and I'm fascinated by lights. And I got the gig and I didn't really necessarily want it, but I decided that I, this is fate. I got the gig. I got to do it. And so our first gig was then in Las Vegas, post Fish. If I'm correct, I believe that show was also a dud of their Vegas. Uh, oh, is that, that's 04, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was the one where they were terrible. And I used to work on a radio show, and the the wife, I forget the name of it, but the wife kept insisting on playing the stuff from those shows. And it was terrible. And I kept running into Fish fans who were like, why are you playing this garbage on the show? That These are awful shows. And I think she was contrarian, and I told her it was so bad that she would just annoy me play it. And that's why that show's gone, I think. But anyways, I digress. Well, also with Mo, they, what was it like? Opening for The Who and the Allman Brothers. Um, I do remember one thing that was significant about The Who was that, again, a lot of these older bands that were around before the invention of moving lights, they are set in their routine and their kind of traditions. And so they are used to using spotlights to light up the band members. So you have a spotlight operator in the opposite end of the arena, way up in the nosebleed, you know, above the seats in the catwalk. And they're calling cues to however many band members you have on stage with the who, I don't know, five, six guys. Oh, there were more. You're talking about 04? Yeah. Yeah, there were more than that. They had a big, bigger band. I remember there being at least six spot operator 
And The Who was nice enough to let me use their entire light rig as an opening band in an arena. I mean, I remember walking into the United Center in Chicago as this young kid and being like, I can't believe we're playing a sold-out show at the United Center, and I get to use this full rig. The catch being, the way I would run a show is I would have moving lights lighting up the band members. So if the band members are a little bit out of position, you can, you can move them and program that in. It's, it's very simple. But I was forced to use spot operators, which meant that I had to call all of the changes over the headsets. So for example, a very you know, poignant moment as a lighting designer is to black out the stage for just a moment if the band stops and then starts again. It's real dramatic because everyone kind of catches their breath. What just happened? Did the power go out? But it's, it's in sync. It's on the downbeat. If you want to do that with six spotlight operators, you're now relying on six other people to hit that beat exactly on the downbeat, which again goes back to why I don't like working with other people physically hitting the button. And that was a perfect example. On the end of every song, I'd say, okay, guys, here comes the end. I'm going to fade out to black. Go. And if four out of the six guys nail it and two guys are late, it looks like shit. And so I remember that being a little frustrating. But again, you're opening for the Who at the United Center. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, the Allman Brothers couldn't have been more accommodating. Let me use the whole rig as well. Um, I remember it was, it was a different lighting console that I was used to using. So that was a little bit of a learning curve. Not because it was more advanced. It was actually less advanced. Because again, these guys are old school. They've been around since the 60s. The newer technology, they never really gravitate towards. They were still kind of using moving lights to light up subject matter. So then at some point, Mo goes on hiatus. And around the same time, Humphreys McGee is in need. And you filled in, correct? I think the first one was some festival up in Maine. It was called the Up North Festival in 2008. And I was without a job. I was unemployed because Mo had done Down, which was Labor Day weekend. And that was their last gig. Trying to, no, I think Modown had been announced that it would be the last gig. This was, this was in August, so this was a couple weeks before. But I, I knew that I was about to be unemployed because Mo had said we're taking an open-ended break. We don't know if we're going to come back or not. They didn't even call it a hiatus. I don't know if they used the word hiatus. They just said we're taking a break. About eight-month break, I think. Something like that. Yeah. So uh, Umphreys called, and they had known me because Umphreys and... Uncle Sammy had done a couple gigs together, and Humphreys and Mo had done a couple gigs together. and um, Really good symbiote. The first two bands. Totally. And I was uh, very motivated to, to nail this. and I knew Motivated. That, I knew that Humphreys' music was very sophisticated, and I needed to be on my toes. So with a band that intricate like Humphreys, those first shows must be difficult. Did you have time to learn their music? How much were you winging it? How much... Uh, was it working? I mean, were was you it on up the to pl- your standards? Were, were you on the plane just like listening to their music religiously trying to... I was, uh, I was driving. I had a car at the time and I, I was driving up to Maine and I was very specific. I think I was talking to their tour manager at the time, Don Richards, and I said, you know, I'd love to get a set list in advance. And he said, well, a lot of times they don't write the set list till the day of, but I'll do my best to get you a set list. Um, and I said, okay, well, I don't really know any of the music. So, the, you know, the farther in advance you can get me the set list, I'll, I'll try to do my best. Um, and I believe he got me a set list maybe a day or two in advance. So I listened over and over and over and I made a bunch of notes and I get to the hotel and I meet up with the band and Brendan Bayless, our vocalist and great guy, um, had a cold, so he couldn't really sing. (laughs) So Don said, uh, we're changing the whole set list because they wanted to play a bunch of songs that didn't include vocals from Brendan. So everything I learned was out the window and it was a bunch of songs that I didn't know. Although the final song was 
In the Flesh by Pink Floyd. So I said, hey, I know that one. You know, I've been studying this guy for, for years. I hope so. You haven't been living in a cave, have you? And, uh, and all the improv was very easy for me. And a lot of people always assume the opposite. They always think, well, you know, the song structures you can memorize, but the improv is tough. How do you do that? You know, how do you know where they're going to go? And it's, it's really the opposite for me. It's, you know, the, the written composed sections, the band members have been playing that for, you know, 15 to 18 years, depending on when the song debuted. So they all have the muscle memory from when the song debuted and they used mm-hmm. to play it, you know, three times a week. So songs that aren't in current rotation now, they still remember that muscle memory, but I was never around for that. So those songs for me are more challenging because they play them once a year and they're very intricate. The improv to me is no different than following Uncle Sammy or following Mo. Even though stylistically it's a little different, it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, knowing tendencies and knowing body language and seeing when their foot is about to step on the overdrive pedal to kick it into high gear and vice versa when the jam is ending and they're going to go to a pretty quiet part you see them step on their pedal and looking for those little nuances so as soon as umphreys in that first show even though i knew nothing about what they were going to play as soon as they get to an open improv section i felt very comfortable um and subsequently i wound up doing more shows with them that fall and was offered the job i think new year's new year's was the first first official show right New Year's 2005? 2008. Eight. Okay. Got my little time off there. Is it safe to say the improvisational element is is the favorite part for you and the thing that keeps you on the road more than anything else? Yeah. I I think that's safe to say. And it's not every show. It's like... And and it takes a lot of focus. It does. So if people are nearby you, even if they're one of your oldest friends or if they're just some random person and they try to talk to you, you can get nasty, but it's not to be nasty. It's because you're trying to do a good job talk about that a little bit i don't think nasty is the right way I well, think i'm saying you can come off that when it's not that it's about focus and <laughs> i think maybe cold is Court, kurt can we go kurt i'll meet you kurt cold i think cold is a or terse is a, is a good the, the problem is i don't have i don't have the mental capacity or the time to explain why i can't talk so if right. someone someone very loving who i haven't seen in a long time whether it's you as a, as a close friend, or it's just a fan who I maybe met once or twice, they're excited, they come right up to me, they tap me on the shoulder in the middle of a song, and they, they just want to say hi, and I don't have time, because I might be counting in 9-8, as we discussed before. Right. And if I'm not counting, I'm going to miss the change, and it could be a very significant change. It could be the end of the song, it could be a segue, and I don't have time, so I just kind of put my finger up and say, come back later, you know, and then they walk away, and they're all. Which dead. finger do you put up? My pointer. Okay, just, just like he's not a big middle finger guy. Like a one moment kind of thing. One momento. And then come well, come see me later. We'll have tea. That little interaction may just take three seconds, but mm-hmm. then I spend the next like one minute over analyzing it in my head. Like, <laughs> did I just offend that person? Like I feel bad, and then so you're screwed if you do, and you're screwed if you don't. I mean, your your brain is just out of the game. And the way I try to explain it to people is like, if I'm playing this like an instrument, it would be the equivalent of going and tapping a musician on the shoulder while they're performing. So would you like a, a the Pope box around you? So like absolutely, as they get bigger, maybe, maybe. Well, that's an interesting thing though, because I mean, sound engineers the same thing. They're you know they have to have that focus, and and a lot of times you you're right. You you're right there in the center, and any you any you're anyone can touch you, get you, you know, pull you, get yeah, your it, attention. It depends on the venue. I mean, there's certain pro venues where you're very isolated, you know, like Red Rocks, for example, or, you know, we've been doing some arenas lately, which has been great. And you, you know, you have a big space and you have a security guard and you have fencing, but it can be distracting. You know, you want your focus to be on the band and the band members brains and the band members fingers and their eyes and any distraction can throw you off. You you mentioned arenas. Any chance you'll be in an arena New Year's Eve? 
that I don't know. I haven't. I'm not. I just do lights. I'm not privy to that. Okay. You also do a lot of video work. Right. I do. You produce these um, promotional things for Humphreys. When did you start oh, doing the, that? The promotional ones, if you guys haven't seen it, they they do like it's a you know a mocking a mock of of a of a movie that may have happened, and you know like Forrest Gump. Uh, you know, these things are they're really they're actually really they funny. can be really funny. Really and, funny. And, damn, Ryan Stasek and Joel Cummins, they're musicians, but they're also they can act. I mean, they have some comedic talent. They right? have focus and and Brendan. <laughs> Brendan Bayless is also he's good. pretty good. He's pretty good too. But I, I've, it's Stasek and Cummins that have just knocked me out multiple times. They're well, good. Tell, tell us about uh, your involvement with that and, and a little bit about it. Well, you know, uh, go, dating back to even before high school, I've always wanted to be a video editor. And uh, you know, I remember there was a time when I was on tour with Mo, and that that kind of in my twenties and early thirties, where I kept telling people I'd really like to get back into video and television, and I didn't quite know what route to take. And uh, I just kind of said, you know, in the back of my mind, at some point I'd love to get back into this, but I don't really know how to do it because you can't just waltz into someplace at age 35 and say, I want to be an intern, you know, and you need to make a living, whatever. So I feel very grateful that, you know, in the context of Humphreys McGee, when I started suggesting ideas, I said, well, I'd love to edit this. And they were very open to me participating. And one thing kind of led to another over the years. And uh, now it's become a tradition for, our event Umble that we do sure that we uh we do parody videos we started that's the word i was looking for Jeez, (laughs) thank you sure uh we started off doing when harry met sally that was one of them we did an almost famous parody we did the forrest gump parody um we did swingers um i think the forrest gump's the funny funniest one uh that was the most elaborate one yeah when we first started off we didn't really know what a parody was apparently i didn't know until after the fact we did the almost famous quote-unquote recreation and we didn't change it enough from the original it was just a bunch of Humphreys guys dressed up and saying the lines we changed a couple lines but I, I remember seeing some fan feedback and, and agreeing with it and thinking like okay we need to tailor this more to our sphere to make it more of a parody which we I think accomplished in the Forrest Gump one but now um, when during this New Year's run the band decided to have one night where they did a, a film event real to real where they debuted a documentary essentially on the band, covering, what, 2000 to 2007 mainly, although there's obviously some heavy recent stuff that was pretty key. Uh, can you talk about that? They, they hit you with a bunch of footage, and you had to throw it together and scheme it, right? Yeah, back in August, I got an email from our manager, Kevin. Uh, we have two managers, Kevin and Vince. Uh, Kevin Browning, who handles creative. And he said, you know, we're, we have all this old footage that we shot, and both him... And Ryan Stasek, back in the years you mentioned, like 2001 through 2007-ish, just had a hand, uh, hand video cam, camcorder, whatever you want to call it, and would just shoot a bunch of footage all the time. And they wanted to string it all together and watch it with the fans on January 1st at the Fillmore in Denver. And Kevin said to me, I'll never forget this, he said, we're not looking to make a documentary or anything. We don't want you to spend too much time on this because it, <laughs> it could be such a time-consuming thing when you have this much footage. It's like two terabytes worth of footage hours and hours and hours just like literally impossible to watch it all in three months uh not let alone edit it and produce it and make it into a cohesive story and i remember emailing him right back and i said well why don't we just make a documentary i don't know how to do this unless we do it at 110 percent effort level it's just a, a sickness i have i just don't know how to you know say well this could be better but we don't have time so we're going to kind of make a half-assed version and he said sure i mean if you if you want to do it go ahead you know knock yourself out and uh, I got the footage at the end of October, and which is 
way later than I would have liked, but they were trying to help me out and whittle it down to, you know, less raw footage because I wasn't there at the time. So I didn't really know all the storylines. So Kevin originally tried to give me the footage a couple weeks earlier. And I said, I'm not going to have time to watch this all. Can you kind of, you know, make this a little bit into more bite size, um, you know, folders of categories. And I had a tiny involvement in this. So I know firsthand just how hard you worked on this. Again, it's, you know, hours and hours and it came out, it came up pretty heavy. Did you get to see it, Seth? Yes, I did. It was actually fantastic. Uh, A lot of stuff in there that uh, I won't say here, but that I didn't know about the band. And um, they definitely capture a lot of the real story. Um, Very, very interesting. So, and it was interesting because some of the footage are like, wow, wait a second. They really got that? It's like, that's not a reenactment. And it's like, no, that was real. And there's well, funny stuff in there. And, there's and, sad and you got to think, though, when that stuff's being recorded, you don't know what's going to happen in the future, and it's gold. So whoever thought to put the cameras in their hands at the time was that was a good decision. And it was interesting for me too because I wasn't there for any of that. You know, I, I joined the band the year after the footage kind of stopped for whatever reason. They stopped shooting, um, and so for me, it was kind of a nice crash course history of the band to kind of see the dynamic between the band members and riding around in the van, which I never really did. I, I kind of jumped into the touring aspect. In you got the, on that bus. First time I ever toured was with Mo on a tour bus, which is kind of unheard of, that I kind of skipped the, you know, in the trenches part of uh, touring. So it was kind of cool for me to go back and, and see the history of the band. Um, but I also was very, very particular that I, I didn't want it to seem like a puff piece. I didn't want it to be like a promo for the band because I, I feel like there's there's enough of that out there. And that's key. That was and, a key well, decision. Well, and if, if you're going to call it real to real, it has to be real. Right. So the, the first frame that you see in the entire documentary <laughs> is about as real as it can get. And it, it, I'm not going to give it away, but it's a journal entry by our lead singer, Brendan, who yeah. used to make, you know, keep a diary. And he sent me this screenshot that he had taken of the of the journal and he said i'm only sending this to show you the date because there was a date at the top of the page and i'd asked him for another journal entry that was on the same page and he said here you go don't use this top paragraph and i said okay and i looked at it and i said holy shit this is like the most succinct and you know poetic way to describe being in a rock and roll band and he just kind of sent it to me by accident and i said dude i i gotta use this this is amazing and he said well don't use it without checking with me first. I need to approve it. And I said, okay. And a couple months later, when the entire thing was done, I sent it to him and I said, I got, and I put it in the first frame. It wasn't like I snuck it in somewhere. I mean, it's the fade up from black. It's the cold open. And to me, I'm, I'm really proud of that because it immediately tells the viewer like, oh, this is, this is very candid and this is, you know, not pulling any punches. And on that note, you know, what you what you guys put out though, it's a, uh, it's a new error. You know, it's uh, before it was um, documentaries on bands, etc. You know, you'd have a major release just like an album. But we're in a new time, just like uh, Umphreys goes and tours and has these live concerts uh, that you can stream, you know, pay-per-view, if you will. Uh, but, you know, that that you have that. You also now have these videos and the video, the movie is uh, going to be... Um, well, it previously had only been shown in Chicago, New York, this Colorado one, and what, a couple other cities? But now it's going to be... Uh, we showed it in Mexico to the CID Presents staff. You did? Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. The day after the... Uh, or two days after the Fish Festival down in Mexico, and we showed it in Asheville 
during our three night run. But, but now it's going to be available. Run. My point is it's going to be available yeah, for download. For download exactly. We don't know yet when, but we will. When you announce a date, we will put it on a future show. We're still working out uh, a couple minor details, and uh, we will be announcing it in the coming months. But it will definitely be available for anyone who wants to download it or stream it online. Mm-hmm. And look- there's obviously, you know, there's so much more we could talk about, um, you know, getting into these live streams and how that affects you and not just the musicians, et cetera. Real to Real will be out. Um, but uh, we're just about out of time. So, Rob, do you have anything else you want to ask? Well, we're going to have, here? well, no, I know you, Seth doesn't like the over hour podcast because it's terrestrial mentality, but we have a game. Okay. This is the game. I read you a lyric and then I give you five songs. You tell me the name of the song. Ready? Born in Believing My Right. There is no seeing inside. We're just a story to reread, not to rewrite. I can read it again if you like. Uh, first song, The Haunt. Second song, Second Self. Third song, Spires. Fourth, FF. Fifth, Words. I, I literally have no idea. And this is the whole point of this game, because you and I discussed this earlier, yes. is that although I've probably seen all of those songs a hundred times each, Give or take, I'm paying attention to the bass line, the drums, the guitar right. line. Right. I'm counting. Yeah. The lyrics go in one ear and out the other. And I know I've been a writer, and I am a student of journalism. And it's you told me to point out irony when I see it. This is ironic, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go with words just to to be a good guess. But no, it spires. Okay, noob. I, I think I think the game has kind of spoken for itself because I won't unless you say all my thoughts divided. I'm not going to get it. <laughs> All right, one more. Where does the basis stand? I never thought I would defend it, so I've established this. So many things I may have missed. Tell me who wrote the rules. Is that end of the road, front porch, hourglass, cut the cable, or nachos for two? Well, I know it's not end of the road because that's an instrumental. Oh, good. See, I'm narrowing it down. Uh, I don't know, front porch, just because they mentioned the bass player? Cut the cable. Cut the cable. Shall we wrap it up, Seth? What's your final words? Well, thank you, Waffle, so much. Thank you so much for being here. We enjoyed having you. Uh, again, everyone, if you want to reach us, we are InsideOutWTNS at gmail.com. And on all the social media, it's InsideOutWTNS. A big thank you to Brian Twilliger, our producer, Brian. sound engineer, and man behind everything that sounds good other than our voices. Because let's face it, Rob. We don't have that great of voices. We sound, if we sound good at all, it's because of Brian. And that's exactly right. So thank you. Thanks for listening. We will, we've got a busy week. We've got some interviews coming up. We've got Leftover Salmon, Mark Brownstein from the Disco Biscuits, Cherub, and so much more. So please stay tuned. We'll, we'll be back with you with much, much more. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day and good night. And wherever you are, don't forget. I forgot. Good night.
Thank you all very much. Uh, fun fact for the night, ladies and gentlemen. Our light guy back there, Jefferson Waffle, grew up in Syracuse as a young lad. His formidable years were spent roaming these streets. And his first rock and roll concert was at this venue. He was two weeks old. He saw Guar open for Kiss, and his parents brought him. How badass is that? So, round of applause for Jeff back there, making it shine. Mm-hmm. 